Now, after church, I assume you will either go out for lunch, go home, whatever it may be. Either way, when someone asks you at that occasion, how was church? If you're anything like me, your answer will probably have something to do with the sermon, right? Oh, church was great. We learn from the book of Luke how waiting on the Lord is a vital part of the Christian life, to use last week's sermon as an example. We often describe our church service as it pertains to the sermon, what we learn, the key points, the passage, etc. But how often do we think back to the singing portion of the service? Not just, oh, we learned a new song in church today, or a new melody. But how often do we say, I learned something theological during singing today. It stirred my heart singing today. It exhorted my mind singing today. Singing worship is extremely important. It's a great chance to preach to yourself far before Stephen takes the pulpit. It's a great chance to encourage one another far before growth groups even happen. It's a chance to put the world aside and focus on God with your voice, your mind, and your soul. But sometimes, if you're anything like me, singing on Sunday morning can be tough. You can feel anywhere from, I'm just not awake enough to sing, I haven't had my coffee yet, or I've had a tough week, disconnected from God, how do you expect me to sing, to even, I don't even know what these lyrics mean. Thankfully, no one expects our congregation to put on a happy face and fake it. But singing to God is something he has commanded us to do in passages like ours today. Sometimes we need a reminder about why we sing and a reminder of the source of the joy that causes that singing to happen. So our psalm today, Psalm 100, is a reminder for why we worship, for why we sing in worship. It's a reminder for why we include at least four songs every Sunday, for why we start and end our service every single week with singing, for why we use it as a response to God's word after the sermon. So this morning, I'm going to argue from Psalm 100 that singing worship is a hugely important part of every weekly service. And ironically, I'm going to do that in a sermon. So Psalm 100, very short psalm, again, page uh, 635 in the bottom right. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pastor. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Now, again, this is a very short very short psalm, just five verses and a fairly clear pattern. We have verses 1, 2, and 4 that give instruction, whereas verses 3 and 5 give reasoning for that instruction. With these five verses, Psalm 100 tells us that we should worship out of joy and thanksgiving. We should worship out of joy and thanksgiving. We see this in verses 1 and 4, which introduce each section of instruction, right? Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth, and enter his gates with thanksgiving. Our worship is meant to be joyful, full of thanksgiving. It's not supposed to be reluctant, scornful, or dare I say, boring. 
And we know this, right? Singing in general is full of emotion, whether it's love songs or sad songs or exciting party songs, right? Worship singing should be full of emotion too, specifically that joy and that thanksgiving. Now, thankfully, this psalm doesn't just say, be joyful, and then come out and measure the length of your smile to see if it's big enough. It doesn't say, be thankful, and then count how many times you've said thank you in the past hour. No, instead, this psalm gives reasoning for why we should be joyful, for why we should be entering into God's presence with thanksgiving. So if you struggle to sing with joy, this text doesn't beat you up and tell you why you should. It helps stir that joy within you by reminding you of what God has done and who he is. So let's take a look at both of those descriptors, starting with joy. Our text starts with make a joyful noise to the Lord. And the Hebrew word here for joy means more than just that feeling of pleasure and happiness that we would describe joy normally. The Hebrew word here can be related to more of a a war cry, a shout of triumph over one's enemies. Now, I know that in situate Massachusetts, we don't do many war cries of triumph, right? But what about if you go over to Foxborough on a Patriots game and they score the winning touchdown? I think the sound that the crowd makes could technically qualify as a war cry of triumph, right? Or... When you go to a concert of your favorite band and the artist plays the final song and they go backstage and you cheer for them to come out to do an encore, right? I think that would be a war cry of triumph. Or when you hear back from a friend about great news that they weren't sure they'd get. I'm finally pregnant. Yeah, right? So in worship, a few things are clear about this joyful noise. It's loud, it's passionate, it's triumphant, right? And it's not exclusive either. This command is given to all the earth, every person on earth, everything on earth. This language is reminiscent of the end times where every knee will bow to God and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But we don't have to wait for Christ's return to praise him with a joyful noise, right? We can do that now. And do you see the connection with worship and to service? Look at the next verse. This is a joyful noise that causes one to serve the Lord with gladness and come into his presence with singing. Now, the context for the word serve here is more minister than work, as in a specific work for the Lord, to minister. And you don't have to be a minister to minister in this context. This is not just for pastors or people on church payroll. This is for all of God's people. Do you know that you are serving as ministers, that you are serving the Lord even when you sing? When you sing of the words that we put on the page, exalting Christ, you're ministering to those around you. Even coming in here and sitting down today is ministering to others saying, you are not alone. You're not alone in your faith. You're not alone in your life. We're all here together. It's a specific work for the Lord that he has commanded. Back in the book of Exodus, when Moses was asking Pharaoh to let God's people go out of slavery, God tells Pharaoh, through Moses, let my people go that they may serve me. That word serve is the same one in our psalm today, serve the Lord with gladness. 
And we know that even though the desert was far less comfortable than Egypt and filled with tough lessons, mostly because of the Israelites' own failures, that was where God had brought them for their sanctification and for the refinement of his people. It was there that they would serve the Lord, that they would minister. So just as the Israelites were freed from Egypt to go serve God in the desert, we shout with joy and go where God tells us to go, to serve him, to minister. We go into his presence with singing, not knowing what comes next, but knowing that we will serve God. And how can we have this confidence to let out a joyful battle cry and to go into God's presence unknowing where it leads? The next verse gives us the first reasoning for our worship and our pattern of instruction than reasoning. Look at verse 3. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pastor. We can gladly and joyfully go into the presence of the Lord because we know that he is God. And what does it mean? What does it mean that he is God? It means nothing surprises him. It means nothing happens that he doesn't ordain. It means nothing can harm you that he hasn't allowed. And it means that you are spiritually safe with him. Because even though your body can fade away or even be killed, nothing can take you away from him. Being God, he is the one who made us, the world, all living things, and everything that will and ever will exist. And yet we are his. We are his people. We have a close relationship to our God that is bigger than any other relationship we have. And your Bible may have a note for this verse that says uh, that this verse technically explicitly means not we ourselves rather than we are his. Now, that may not read as clean of a translation, which is why they changed it to be a little cleaner in the English, but I think that gets the point across perfectly and not we ourselves. This verse completely refutes the idea that many people in our culture have that God created everything and then just kind of sat back and said, let's see how it plays out. No. God is not a painter that paints a masterpiece and then sells it off to the highest bidder. No, our God created the canvas, created the paint, created the brush, and is currently making us into a beautiful masterpiece for his glory. We are not just created by God. We belong to God. You see the difference there? God says to his people in the book of Isaiah, chapter 43, Thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you, and I have called you by name. You are mine. Now, to exemplify this even more, in the second half of this verse, we see the classic metaphor of God's people being sheep in his pastor, being in his presence and under his care as a good shepherd. Now, listen, I, I understand that nowadays being called a sheep can somewhat be an insult, right? We can call people sheep who we think are easily convinced or gullible, especially in politics, but Christians, no, this should not be the case. God himself has called us sheep under the care of his shepherd. We're called sheep because we follow our shepherd, knowing that he will guide us and protect us. Unfortunately, 
also like sheep, we tend to wander away from the flock and need our shepherd's guidance again and again and again. So Christians do not use sheep as an insult because we are all sheep. It's just a matter of who our shepherd is. Is your shepherd God who will promise to protect you in his pastor, or is your shepherd someone of this world, here today and gone tomorrow, and will lead you astray from God into destruction? So, we need to have joy when we worship. Joy because the God who created everything is our shepherd, and we are his. We belong to him. And that leads to a joyful war cry of worship. We're not wandering around looking for purpose. We don't need to fear the future. We have an active God who guides and protects us. And if we are his, we are sheep in his pasture, and that's a very good thing. Now, if your worship is not like this, if your worship is not a joyful war cry of victory for what God has done, then it may benefit asking yourself some tough questions all stemming from verse 3. Do you believe that the Lord is God? That he created everything and is in control of everything and will never lose that control? Do you believe that God made you in his own image? That he made you everything that you are? Do you believe that that makes us his, that we belong to him? That we are sheep whether or not we follow our good shepherd? And do you believe that if you are with him, that he is your shepherd and will guide and protect you. God created us, but just like sheep, we have chosen to wander away from our shepherd and our home. We have gone after sin, which is what God has told us not to do, for our own protection. That is a path to destruction. That is why Jesus, God in flesh, came down and lived a perfect life and took all punishment for sin, death. But he rose again, and is now reigning in glory, interceding for us to the Father. We need to acknowledge that truth day after day, or else we're wandering away yet again. It is knowing that truth that leads to worship as a response, a joyful worship in response. If worship is hard for you, then Christian, I urge you to pray through the gospel and see if there is anything holding you back from being joyful in that truth. Next, in verses 4 to 5, we see that worship should have thanksgiving. Look at these next two verses with me, verses 4 and 5. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Now, thanksgiving is what we give to God. We give thanks it can be described as a grateful acknowledgement of benefits or favors, right? And we have already been given the reasons why we ought to be thankful. In verse 3, God made us, we are his sheep. That makes us his people. That is why we ought to be grateful. And look at verse 4 again. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. So the psalmist is saying, now that you understand why you ought to be thankful, Enter into communal worship with others. Enter into his courts. Enter into the temple already with thanksgiving on your lips because of what God has done for you. And while it's absolutely true that each of us have a personal relationship with our God, all of us also have the same reason to celebrate 
and to worship together the gospel. When we come together, we get to celebrate the gospel as a corporate unit rather than individuals. And this is extremely, extremely important because it is one of the ways that we get to fulfill the commands in this psalm in other places in the Bible to worship our God for what He has done and who He is. Worshiping together is commanded of us. So this can be seen as verses 1 and 2 give instruction to praise, and then verse 4 tells us how. In the court of the temple with your fellow believers. Psalm 95, which is probably just a couple pages back if you want to turn there, in which this psalm in many ways can be seen as a companion psalm to this one. It helps us visualize this idea a little bit more. Psalm 95 verses 1 to 2 say, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Now this starts out with a similar expression of why we ought to worship God and then the act of coming together to worship him specifically with songs of praise. And even in the New Testament, we see how a proper response to God's goodness is by coming together to worship him as a unit. In Colossians 3.16, Paul writes, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The word of Christ is reflected in teaching one another, but also in singing together, also in worshiping together in thankfulness. Paul uses the word thankfulness to reflect how our posture and response ought to be when we are taught with God's word. It's that same feeling after you get an amazing gift for Christmas or after you get that new job after searching for so long. Think of it this way. Thankfulness is the feeling like joy that we described earlier and thanksgiving is the action. Thankfulness is being grateful for a gift where thanksgiving is saying thank you and giving a good hug. That is why our worship is described as thanksgiving in our passage today. It is of that thankfulness that we gather together to be thankful with others, to join together in our thankfulness because we have all benefited from God's work towards us. Let me describe it a different way. Let's say that you go down for a, a weekend in New York and you see an amazing Broadway play. Amazing acting, astonishing sets, dazzling musical numbers, once the show is over, does everyone just leave? No. They applaud, right? Often with a standing ovation. Now, it may sound crazy, but we don't technically need to applaud after a show. We don't. We've already paid for the show. Nothing more is required of us, right? So why do we applaud? To thank the cast and crew for putting on a good production. To thank them for entertaining us to thank them for their talent and for their time. We applaud because of the appreciation of the talent on display. We feel thankfulness for that gift of their talent, so we show thanksgiving and applause. So now take that idea of applauding for a display of talent well done and now apply it to worship of our God. If we can give a standing ovation for a two-hour play, how much more should we show our gratitude towards a God who constantly upholds the world, comforts our hearts, and gives us the incredible gift of eternal life in Him, even though we were yet sinners when He died for us? 
Again, if we are so willing to stand and applaud because someone pretended to be someone else, very well, might I add, for a few hours, how much more appreciation should we show towards our God who authentically listens to our prayers, who cares for us as a shepherd does his flock and is going to come again to righteously judge the living and the dead? God's love, judgment, wisdom, and kindness are being put on display all across the globe every single day. If an audience in a theater can applaud a performance just for them, this is why all the earth should sing a joyful noise to our God. So that would explain the beginning of verse 4, right? Give thanks to him. But what about the second part? Bless his name. Now, if you're anything like me, the words bless his name can be a little confusing, right? How can I bless God when God is the one who normally blesses? And what does it mean specifically to bless his name? Now, it is true that we do not give God blessings in terms of giving him something that he needs, right? In the way that he would bless us. We cannot help God in that specific way that God would help us Instead, blessing God is a way of recognizing that God is ultimately the most blessed and has the most favor, the most goodness, the most of anything that we would consider a blessing if we were to get from him. The Hebrew word for bless here, barak, speaks to the level of praise of kneeling down before one whom you are praising. So to bless God is not giving a blessing as much as it is recognizing the blessed state of God. John Piper puts it really well. He said, if God is the primal and inexhaustible blesser, then he must be above all others in a blessed state, the fullness and source of all blessing. If this is so, then a most natural burst of praise would be, you are blessed. And ultimately, if I find that I need to understand how to do something correctly, if I need to understand how to do something well, I try to look in the Bible to see how God did it, how Jesus did it. And I would say that Exodus 34 is an amazing example of God blessing his own name and therefore showing us how to bless his name. Exodus 34 verses 5 through 8 say, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there. And proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshiped. Blessing the name of the Lord means to respond to his goodness by verbally kneeling and proclaiming in praise all that God's name Jehovah stands for. Mercy, grace, patience, steadfast love, faithfulness, forgiveness, judgment, and righteousness. And that's where we see the psalmist wrap up in verse 5 by bringing this all back to God's character, who he is and what his name stands for. Look at verse 5. 
For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. So if verse 2 is saying, here are the things that God has done for you to be thankful for. Verse 5 says, and those things happen because that is who God is. This isn't a situation where God is being praised because he happened to do something that aligned with what we wanted to happen. God is not only good in particular circumstances if what he did lines up with our definition of good, if something is good to us. God is not good because he does something good. Something that he does is good because he is good. Do you see the difference there? He is good. Christian, do you know that we only know love because God is love? John writes in 1 John that we love because he first loved us. If we had a God that was unloving, we would have no clue what love is. We only know what it means to be dependable and to be loyal because God is steadfast, because God is faithful. Paul writes in Romans, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Throughout all of time, God has been the same, and we have not. He shows us how to be faithful. We only know how to have dedication and devotion because Christ has been faithful to every generation of his bride, the church. Husbands in the room, do you know that you only know how to properly love your wife because Christ properly loves his church and has given you that example? Paul writes in Ephesians, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Every single way that we are told to love our wives is modeled by Christ's love for his bride, the church. Every act that God does in some way points to an attribute of him because he cannot deny himself. If you want to learn more about God's attributes, look at what he has done in the Bible. Look at what he has done in his word and apply it to a characteristic. One of the most helpful ways to read the Bible is to read it through the lens of learning who God is by what he has done. Now verses 1, 2, 3, and 5 all use Jehovah, God's proper name that reflects all these characteristics. The psalmist is referring to all those attributes that that name carries as evidence for why we ought to praise the way that we should. When someone hears the word God, lowercase g, they think of something extremely powerful and above all else. That's true. But uppercase g, God, or Jehovah, or the Lord in all caps in your Bible, means so much more. It means the most powerful. It means love. It means steadfastness. It means patience. It means faithful. Oh, Christians, may we join with the writer of Psalm 86 and exclaim, for you are great and do wondrous things, you alone are God. Now these characteristics of God that are wrapped up in the name of the Lord, all caps, are worthy of joyful noises, thanksgiving, and blessing, especially by singing. So as we close, let me offer a piece of application from this psalm, something that may be a little challenging, but stick with me here. If worship by singing 
if singing with a joyful noise, if blessing the name of the Lord is supposed to be an act of thankfulness to God for all that He is and all that He has done, it should be good. We should be actively trying to be better worshipers by being better singers. Now, stay with me here. Let me clarify. I am not saying that all of us need to somehow get vocal surgery to sound like Adele or someone like that, right? I'm not saying we should do that. To put it in another way, in our hearts, Christians, we should not settle for mediocre worship. However we are able to sing, we should put our entire hearts into the worship of God together. Now, if you're thinking, mm-mm, that's what Patrick, Zach, Becca, and Pat are for. They do the singing. I listen. No. I would argue, and I hope they would as well, that they are not there to be your singing. They are there to lead you in singing, to show you the right pacing, to show you the right notes, to help us know when to sing the verse and when to wait for a couple more guitar strums. That's what they are for. Now, this was extremely challenging for me as I wrestled with this, asking myself, am I worshiping God the best way that I can? And I would encourage you to ask yourself, do I want to give God my best worship? Do I want to work on making a joyful noise to Him? Is my current worship reflective of how joyful and thankful I am to Him? This is not some standard to be hit. Some of us haven't been blessed with amazing vocal cords. But if we have been blessed with voices, we ought to tune them to a pleasing sound to our God. This psalm and others I mentioned don't say you have to hit every note perfectly. What they describe is an active response of joyful noise to God's glory. Each of our joyful noises sound different, but they are all joyful. Just as you seek to actively listen to the sermon and write notes, we should all actively seek to sing well by setting our hearts on God and worshiping Him in response to what He has done for our benefit, and like I said before, to the benefit of those around us as well as we minister to one another in worship. So if your response is genuinely, I just don't care for singing, even though the Bible has encouraged us to worship to God by singing, I would encourage you to reflect on why you may not want to worship God in a way that he has specifically demanded and designed. What God has done and who he is demands a joyful noise of praise. It is good for our hearts. It is good for the encouragement of each other and is pleasing to our God. As we close, hear from Psalm 34, another song encouraging songs of praise. The psalmist writes, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together.